Last month, after 15 hours of deliberation, the Indiana State Licensing Board ruled that our friend and colleague, Dr. Caitlin Bernard, an OBGYN, violated patient privacy laws in discussing the case of a 10-year-old girl who traveled from Ohio for an abortion. She was given a letter of reprimand and a $3,000 fine. While a relatively minor punishment, this finding should send a chill through the medical community and beyond, but that chill should not be silencing. Caitlin Bernard has been persistently attacked over the past year for using her voice to advocate for reproductive health policies that are evidence-based and about which she has particular expertise. This precedent of politicizing advocacy and using the Medical Licensing Board for enforcement leaves all doctors open to persecution by politicians who do not have medical training or an ethical obligation for advocacy. Make no mistake that this represents a threat to the medical profession and public health. That was Gabriel Boslett and Tracy Wilkinson reading from their recent first opinion essay. Gabriel is an associate professor of clinical medicine at the Indiana University School of Medicine, and Tracy Wilkinson is an assistant professor of pediatrics at the Indiana University School of Medicine. They're also both among the co-founders of the Good Trouble Coalition. After a quick break, I'll bring you our conversation about doctors' responsibility to be advocates, even in a troubled political environment. I'm Jesse McQuarters, branded content editor for STAT. Recognizing the breadth and diversity of America's 53 million family caregivers, how can we better know and see these important unsung heroes? Lisa Wilson, head of caregiver advancement strategy and experience at United Healthcare, offers insights. Family caregivers are a cornerstone of our health system, but it can be challenging to support them in the moments that matter. United Healthcare is breaking down the barriers to identifying and engaging caregivers. For example, we're making it easy for caregivers to establish necessary HIPAA permissions and encouraging self-identification. The more we know about this population, the more we see them, especially early on in their caregiving journey, the better support we can provide. For more information, visit uhc.com slash caregiving. Welcome to the First Opinion Podcast. I'm Tori Bosch, editor of First Opinion. First Opinion is Stat's platform for interesting, illuminating, and provocative articles about the life sciences writ large, written by biotech insiders, healthcare workers, researchers, and others. Gabriel and Tracy, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having us. So excited to be here. So I think that most of us have heard about Caitlin Bernard's story, which you mentioned briefly in the introduction, but can you please refresh listeners' minds about exactly what happened with her? Sure. So um, Dr. Bernard is one of two uh, specialty-trained abortion providers in the state of Indiana. Um, And she has been working here for years. And soon after the Supreme Court decision, the Dobbs decision that overturned the federal legal protections for abortion access, um, many states, including neighboring states such as Ohio, immediately had trigger laws that went into effect effectively 
stopping abortion immediately after the Supreme Court decision. Um, people living in these states suddenly had to access abortion outside of their states. And um, Dr. Bernard was um, contacted for help for a patient that was in need of an abortion after being the victim of rape and incest um, in her home state of Ohio. And then she went and shared this story, right? Can you talk a little bit about why she decided to tell people about this 10-year-old girl's experience and what happened when she did? Yeah, so I can tell you as a physician and as an advocate, we often tell stories of patients to help give examples and also make it um, real to people that might be on the other side as a patient themselves. And so storytelling and giving examples is inherently part of physician advocacy. Um, Dr. Bernard was being asked about the repercussions of the sudden um, Supreme Court decision and gave an example of a patient um, that was really um, What's the word I'm looking for? Um, a dramatic story of the real repercussions and the instant repercussions that were happening on the ground in the Midwest immediately after the fall of um, Roe. And so this story ended up um, being important to show the immediate impacts of how patient care, even a 10-year-old rape victim's patient care, can be impacted. Um, and unfortunately, the anti-abortion extremists took this story and started making it about Dr. Bernard and not about the actual patient care that had been impacted. Um, and this landed on a national and international news cycle as well as political stage, which made the story literally catch on fire. And I mean, something I remember watching just as a journalist was that initially when Dr. Bernard came out and shared this story, the sort of first response was, that's impossible from critics of abortion saying, that's impossible, it obviously didn't happen. And then as soon as it became clear that it actually had happened, as reporters found out, um, the criticism changed to be specifically about well, you shouldn't be sharing a patient's personal story. Um, and that indeed is also what the licensing board uh, sort of punished her for, was for allegedly violating patient privacy. Um, Gabe, can you talk a little bit about, as advocates, how physicians try to balance um, sharing stories while protecting privacy? Yeah. I mean, Tracy alluded to the fact earlier that, you know, stories and storytelling and narratives are Honestly, I mean, you're a reporter. They're the most powerful part of any piece in description. I mean, we often will use stories to narrate larger themes that are going on, right? Um, a lot of stories are anecdote, but 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 stories illustrate it in ways that data can't, just doesn't, you know, it isn't as visceral and emotional when you hear numbers as it is when you hear about human beings. And so, you know, we as physicians will often use stories and patient cases when describing things to our colleagues that we've seen and, and to sort of educate them on what's going on. Um, and so that they understand, so, hey, if you see this in the future, you're going to want to sort of think about these things. And so, yes, as physicians, you know, we have an obligation. I mean, I, I, if I'm honest, I think the pandemic sort of laid bare for us the fact that we for a long time have been really 
pretty silent about stuff, right? Physicians are sort of socialized to, to fly under the political radar um, and to sort of do our work and, 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 and everyone's going to leave us alone. Um, but the pandemic made it clear that everyone's not leaving us alone, right? Um, I took care of, I'm an ICU physician. I, I, I watched a lot of unvaccinated people die because the elected leaders in our country decided that, that you know, um, the pandemic, a lot of them decided that the pandemic wasn't a big deal. Um, and, you know, we, it was, became clear to us that we had to start to speak out and that became political, right? So me going and talking about the importance of vaccines was seen by many as political. And if, if that scene is political, then I'm completely fine with political speech. You know, public health is political, period. It is, it is, it is intrinsic in discussing public health that is political. And so these stories um, and the story that Dr. Bernard shared in a de-identified way, I should say, um, are important to letting folks know the real life implications of large policy decisions that are made in states like Indiana. The pandemic showed us that as physicians, it is intrinsic in our roles to speak up um, for issues of public health, patient safety, health equity. And it, doing that requires that we tell stories. It, it, it is a requirement of that obligation. Yeah, and so one thing you write about in your first opinion, which I should note was co-authored by two of your colleagues from the Good Trouble Coalition, which is a great name. Uh, one thing that you all write about is that doctors often see this advocacy as sort of not their job, right? That advocacy is a dirty word. And Gabriel, as you just said, that you're socialized to think that that's not your responsibility. Um, how exactly are physicians socialized this way? Is it something that sort of starts with medical education or is it something that you kind of glean from your colleagues during early training? I think both. I mean, you know, we're both medical educators and um, I think part of it is that it's not talked about. Um, so, so there are very few role models that we see um, doing this work um, that we see, you know, being interviewed, writing op-ed pieces. You know, when I grew up, there were very few of those. Um, and so it's, part of it is that it's just omitted from our the process of becoming, becoming a physician. But also, and I'll be honest, this still exists um, when when I talk to people about the things that I do, there are people whose face kind of crunches up a little bit in, in discomfort. Um, and that's another way, right? So not only do we not talk about it, but when we do talk about it, there's a wide swath of physicians who this makes them very uncomfortable. I, I, I'll be honest, and I, I, I said this before, I think the pandemic changed that. I see, I've seen a lot of physicians, including uh, Tracy, uh, on, you know, on national news programs talking about the importance of abortion rights, of uh, vaccines for uh, uh, against COVID-19, uh, for gun safety. This has, the pandemic for me changed everything. I'm an ICU physician, so everything goes back to the pandemic. The pandemic changed everything and and took away, for me, it, it sort of unshackled a, a latent desire to really um, help the public understand the, 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 the ramifications of political decisions in the arena of their health. I, I also want to add that I think for a lot of us, people look at our work as stuff that we do on the side. 
And it's not seen as inherently part of our role as physicians and educators. And that also perpetuates this feeling that this is just something that we like to do on the side, that it's our passion project and we do this in our after hours. And there has been a lack of engagement also from our institutions, from our medical institutions that have some of the larger sizes, money and power to use to sway certain political decisions. They have been sitting back for decades and not engaging in these conversations and allowing you know, other groups and lobbyists to really guide those conversations. And so I think there are multi-factors coming into why physicians have not been more of a part of this talk, but that is why our op-ed is trying to call to action to tell people that that has got to change or else these attacks on medical decision-making and decisions that should be lying in the hands of patients are only going to continue. And, and to put a final point on it, and Tracy, you might disagree, but you know, this right now, this is work that we do on the side, which which is very unfortunate, right? So it, this is, you know, good trouble work is work that, tra- you know, our good trouble meetings are at 9 p.m. on Monday nights. Um, and I'm frequently on the weekends doing my good trouble work because it's not something that I get time or, you know, I don't get paid to do it. Uh, and neither of us do. And so, you know, right now it is. And, and I think that that's part of the problem, frankly. And so we've mentioned the Good Trouble Coalition a couple of times now, but what is it exactly? Um, what is, where did the name come from and what sort of Good Trouble are you all hoping to get up to or already getting up to? The Good Trouble Coalition started on June 3rd, 2022. There was a lot of stuff going on in Indiana at that point. The legislature was gearing up for a special session where, they, where everyone knew that they were going to put some sort of abortion ban in place. And um, we had just come out of the pandemic We had just had a bunch of shootings um, in Buffalo and Uvalde, and the Indiana State Legislature passed a Permitless Carry Act, which basically says anyone can carry a gun anytime for any reason uh, without and and based on the laws here without background checks. And so it just seemed um, I got mad. Um, And so I sent out a tweet that said, you know, if you're a physician in the state of Indiana, you're frustrated with the way things are going message me and I'm looking to start some good trouble. And I had that John Lewis quote in the back of my head, um, good trouble, necessary trouble. And, and I, you know, realized, oh man, there's, there's a lot of appetite for this. Um, and, and I had also sort of looked around to say, okay, what is already out there that what groups are already out there in Indiana advocating at the level of the state house for public health, because it seemed to be absent during the pandemic. And I realized there wasn't a place the places that I thought should be doing it weren't. And so we put together a group of about 12 of us that were served as sort of a critical mass of, of people who all were struggling independently with what was going on and, and wanting to sort of turn our anger into action. This has been a crash course in um, advocacy and organizing. We've incorporated as a 501c4 nonprofit. We have started raising money. We have, uh, we, this past legislative session, hired a, a lobbyist to help rep- represent us at the state house so that we can get meetings and understand what was going on when. And so the Good Trouble Coalition is now over uh, 1,200 um, public health and healthcare. We call them public health and healthcare uh, stakeholders rather than Initially, we thought it was maybe going to be just physicians and then just healthcare workers, but there were so many people who who fell outside of those boundaries that we were like, we have to open this up to anyone who who's interested in these issues. So now there's over 1,200 of us, and we um, 
there has been little downtime in work to do since that time. Yes, because not only, of course, are there abortion restrictions, but also Indiana is, um, I believe, passing new limitations on gender affirming care. Can you talk a little bit about what other issues you all are, are trying to get involved with in the state? Yeah, I mean, I think this gets back to this big picture. You know, abortion access and rights have been attacked for decades. So that is not a new story. But what we are trying to get people aware of is that they're not, that was just the starting point. And that the attack on evidence-based healthcare, the attack on patient-centered care, where decisions about what care you receive actually is made by the patient and not somebody at the state house, are continued attacks that are going to keep happening. Um, so, Tori, you mentioned gender-affirming care. Indiana passed that legislation this session. Um, and, you know, Gabe and I are sad to report it was a really fierce battle, but it wasn't close. Um, we did not have a chance to really win that battle. Um, and that's because of um, the overlap of people that are interested in kind of that sense of control at the state house rather than giving that control to patients. Um, and so these are really, really big decisions that impact how we practice medicine and impact how patients access care. And if we are not talking about that, if we are not testifying about how this is going to impact, for example, a minor who has gender dysphoria and wants to be able to access care um, and the risk to not being able to access that care being suicide, death. Um, you know, if we're not talking about that and expecting that minor to be able to advocate for themselves, that that's so wrong on so many levels. Um, and that that was also mentioned in our in our op ed about we have to use our privilege and our power to speak for people that cannot. The frustrating part is that there are certain a lot of physicians who sort of don't see some of this stuff as their lane. You know, I, I have physicians be like, oh, that's an abortion issue. I'm not an abortion provider. That's not my lane. That is, in my opinion, such a fallacy. Right. So the, these attacks are an attack on the House of Medicine writ large. If you look at what's happened in Indiana in just the last few years, prior to the pandemic, physicians were generally left alone. But since the pandemic, we have had attacks on vaccines. That happened at our state house. We have had attacks on um, abortion. We have had attacks on uh, gender affirming care. We've had an attack uh, on uh, an abortion provider for sharing a, an, an illustrative story, the, uh, the Caitlin Bernard story. All, all four of these things have happened in the last year that never happened before. And so the House of Medicine needs to understand that the trajectory here is extremely clear that red state state houses are coming for the practice of medicine. And so thinking that because you are in a specialty that has been left alone thus far, that you're going to enjoy that privilege for much longer is folly. It is folly. And we are in the problem of having to of seeing the scope of the state house creep into medicine because so many of us have remained silent while they have attacked abortion rights. You know, I think one thing that's been striking to observers like me is that it does seem as though this is falling to you physicians rather than as you mentioned a bit earlier medical systems, right? That we're seeing 
hospital system lawyers give the most conservative legal advice possible, right, to decide when a patient is eligible for an abortion and when they're not. I mean, can you talk a little bit about what that's been like for you and what you're seeing? You know, are, are some hospital systems being more cautious than others? Are all of them being incredibly cautious? You know, are you getting much support from the lawyers um, in hospital systems? This is a sticky wicket. Go ahead, Tracy. Well, I was going to say this um, This is uh, this has happened because for the past 50 years, the attack on abortion rights and access has been mainly happening outside of mainstream medicine. Okay, a vast majority of abortions do not happen in hospital settings. And a lot of the legislative fighting that's been happening has been with not the hospital systems. It's been with outside providers. And so to be quite honest, Tori, the the lawyers within our healthcare system, this is new to them. Giving advice on what is legal within the abortion legislation is literally the first time they're having to do that. And this gets back to the point Gabe was making about this has always been considered an other, that it is their issue, that this is something that like the abortion community needs to figure out. And so for 50 years, they've been attacked silently. And now the attack is larger, but we are mainly on defense now because we are not organized. We are not prepared and we do not have the infrastructure within our health systems on how to respond. I agree fully. I, I do. Th- I think the health systems are are really reeling and trying to get their their heads around what their role here is. And and I, I sort of want to point out that you know the health system that Caitlin, Caitlin Bernard works for did issue actually a pretty good statement after the medical licensing board um, uh, came out with their decision supporting her and supporting what happened. And so you know, in my opinion, that that's an an example of where. The health system did did stand up and take a stand. It would have been a, it would have been very easy for them to just remain mum, frankly, especially in a state like Indiana, and they didn't. And I'm very frankly proud of them for doing that. But I, but I think um, I do think that health systems are trying to understand what their role has been or, or has to be because because this stuff, this, these attacks on medicine from the state house is is new. We're figuring it out, right? Tracy and I and the Good Trouble Coalition are trying to figure out, okay, what is our role? And, and we've come to the conclusion that we need to organize and, and advocate and be, and be in the state house, frankly. And, and the health systems who, who have had a role in the state house, but mostly on sort of financial reimbursement issues are now having to face this and figure out, okay, where, how does this work? I, I agree fully. I think they're, I think they're trying to figure it out. Do you think that professional organizations um, are doing enough here or is there more support that you would like to see from, I won't name names, but from some big organizations out there? Yes. Um, you know, in, in my opinion, the spear's tip of this thing are the, is the medical societies. Um, the spear's tip of this is getting medical societies to understand getting, for example, pulmonary and critical care societies to understand that going to Florida for meetings or Indiana, let's say, for meetings means that 50% of the people who would potentially go there are going to a place where if they happen to be pregnant, may not receive evidence-based care if something would be to happen. And to hold a meeting there, to me, 
seems like a mistake. And we need to stand up and put our money where our mouth is and spend conference dollars in places that understand that evidence-based medicine means sometimes offering services that some people don't like. And that's okay. You don't like that service, don't, don't get that service. Now, before we wrap up, I want to get back to Dr. Caitlin Bernard's story. Um, and I'd like to hear from you what you're hearing from your colleagues. So she got this fine um, and small censure from the licensing board. Do you think that her story is one that's largely inspiring people to continue to speak out because they've seen the impact it can have? Or is it chilling people who might want to be advocates but are now afraid? Or both, perhaps? Man, that's a great question. Yeah, I mean, I would say it's a little bit of both. I I think both Gabe and I have heard from people that are considering whether they're going to stay in Indiana. Um, And I think that that is a legitimate concern if you are making a decision of where to start a career and potentially where to start a family. Um, And or people that are not sure they want to ever move here, which is also fair. Um, But I also hear from people that are starting to realize that we have power in numbers and that leaving doesn't give us that power. It just diminishes it. And part of the work in Good Trouble is to make everybody realize that you're not alone, right? We are not asking these questions and pushing our institutions to do more or to do better by ourselves. And um, and if, if we are doing it as a group, the risk to each of us as individuals is much less. I think a lot of people are frustrated by what the medical board did. I mean, within a very short amount of time, about four or five days, um, there was a letter published in the Indy full page ad in the Indy Star with over 500 physicians. Physicians only signed that letter. Getting physicians to sign something like that is not easy. I think that people saw this as a, an attack by the state on 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 medical providers writ large. And I would say that silencing us is exactly their goal and their point. And. I'm in the camp where I refuse to let them win that. Um, And if that means that, you know, there are more medical license board hearings for us doing our job, I think it will continue to challenge this argument that this is not part of our job as physicians. And and I think that that's an important argument for us to win eventually. Um, and, And although the penalty against Dr. Bernard was minor, it's still a penalty. And it still sent a signal that that all of us have to be careful. Um, and and that is an important signal that I think some of us are all seeing and listening to. But you cannot deny the fact that this was being sent to an abortion provider when similar things have happened in our state with other clinicians that are not abortion providers. And, you know, very, very little similarity after the fact. Gabriel Boslett and Tracy Wilkinson, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having us. It was awesome. Thank you, Tori. Thank you for listening to the First Opinion Podcast. It's produced by Teresa Gaffney. Alyssa Ambrose is the senior producer, and Rick Burke is the executive producer. I'd love to hear from more listeners, so let me know which First Opinion contributors you'd like to hear on the show or what topics the podcast and column should take on. 
You can do that by emailing me at first.opinion at statnews.com. And if you have a minute, please do leave a review or rating on whatever platform you use to get your podcasts. And until next time, I'm Tori Bosch, and please don't keep your opinions to yourself.